Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. I love a good hack. It could be a new productivity app or a new process for better thought mapping. This is why I was excited to interview the guest on today's podcast, Jason Pfeiffer. He is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. A large part of Jason's work is talking to people who have accomplished amazing goals. Jason uses the lessons learned from these interviews to teach us their successful thought methods and behaviors. He has turned these teachings into multiple podcasts, a newsletter, and a book that are all part of his Build for Tomorrow series. Jason believes these insights can be built into skills that people can use to make their lives more productive and fulfilling. And he uses this knowledge to help individuals and in some cases, entire companies grow into the future. Prior to his leadership at Entrepreneur, Jason held editorial roles at Men's Health, Maxim, and Boston Magazine, and he has written about business and technology for the Washington Post, Slate, and New York Magazines, amongst many other major publications. Jason, thank you for being a guest on Explain to Shane. I was just listening to one of your podcasts on the Build for Tomorrow um, podcast series you have, and you did a great interview where you talked to both Tech Congress founder Travis Moore and Austin Carson, who's now at Seed AI. For the record, I am actually on the board of CDI. I'm very proud of the work that they're doing there. But it was about whether we can make politics smarter. And you started with the example of the Senate hearing where Senator Blumenthal talked about the Finsta. And I actually did a podcast. I mean, I did a blog on that and the confusion and the challenge of it. And so I really enjoyed listening to your podcast because you kind of tracked with the same process. A lot of us who try to make people in Congress more informed you nailed it in this. So I've just a major really shout out telling Thank everybody you. should listen to this one. But both Austin and uh, Travis really, they, they explained the importance of, you know, part of it is that we need to enable better staff, which is why Tech Congress allows us to put people that are kind of digital native, but they're also current in what the issue is. Because you don't always need, you know, it's like a lot of things. You need somebody who's really smart about semiconductors for a couple of years, and then you want that person to go do something else. They don't necessarily really need to stay and get really good on tax policy unless they want to be. And then the other one is outside educators, which is one of the reasons why I started this podcast. I am very fortunate. I am in a position where I know a lot of smart people. They would come up and talk to me about things. And I was like, you know, we should record this. And that is the actually the genesis of Explain to Shane. So I just major kudos on that. And then if you, you go listen all the way to the very end of that episode, you, God love you, put to rest a story. So I worked for George <laughs> Herbert Walker Bush, and this just drive me nuts. It was that the story about the grocery store scanner. And everyone was like, oh my God, this guy's an idiot. You know, he's this rich guy, he's president of the United States, he didn't know how to go to the grocery store. Well, so he, I used to live by the vice president's mansion or by the, the Safeway. It's called Social Safeway that was there. And I actually was in line when he was vice president behind him and a secret service guy. And he was buying lotion. And I, I just, he looked at me and he goes, it's for Barr, his wife. And so I knew <laughs> that, I mean, I'd been there, I'd seen him use a scanner before this whole thing happened. And I was like, how the hell did that get so out of hand? And so you talk about that at the very end where you say, he, you know, he was at the national grocery you know, one of the um, trade associations, and they were actually showing him new technology, but the media ran with the idea that he didn't know, you know, he was just, didn't know what he was talking about. So yeah, that's right. So he was that, that, that's right. He was at some kind of uh, convention or something, and they were showing him new technology. The National Grocers Association yep. is what it was. And he was being impressed because one, it was new technology. And two, he was playing to the crowd. They they made this thing. They're excited about it. They want right. him to be excited about it. And that's wonderful. We all, we all love uh, new technology and, and the people who create smart things. And the thing that really drove my curiosity about that 
whole episode and that I think is the big takeaway for everything that you just said there is, I think, and I'm really obsessed with this idea, I think that when we simplify problems, we inhibit our ability to come up with meaningful solutions. And even something like, to go back to what you were saying before there, so Richard Blumenthal says this silly thing to, to this Facebook executive where he asks if Facebook will commit to ending Finsta. And they have this awkward exchange because it seems that he doesn't have any idea what Finsta is. And she's very delicately trying to explain to him that it's not a thing that Facebook can end because it's just a user behavior. You could listen to that and say, well, the problem here is that old man Blumenthal is a dummy who is too old to understand technology and thus everything is broken. And, and I, I, I was watching that moment because it blew up on Twitter and I thought to myself, there has to be a better explanation for this. It can't possibly be that senators, old as they may be, simply wander into the Senate hearing room uh, like a retiree wandering into play you know, <laughs> chess or something and just kind of say whatever's on their mind. Clearly, the people work for them. They, they, they've studied this. What is happening? I just didn't know. I'm not a creature of Washington. I had no idea what I was seeing. I was seeing some system break down, but I was pretty sure it wasn't as simple as dummy walks into a hearing. And so to understand it better, I dug in, I talked to these very smart people, and I came away with this much better understanding of what that moment is a symptom of and what we can actually do to start building better solutions. And I think that we need to apply this way of thinking to everything. When you see something that doesn't work, it's worth understanding truly why it doesn't work. Because if you simplify the problem down to, oh, that guy is an idiot, or that, that group of people are terrible, or that technology is just hurting us because it's new, we will never ever be able to get to meaningful solutions. And you did a great job of kind of in that particular instance, I'm just a bit playing to my audience because I know we, we can hear in Washington, but it, it's a little bit of both. I mean, they're, they're time compressed, right? They don't have much as much time as you think they would to really go through very naughty problems as in you get it. So um, right. the fact that we have groups now like Tech Congress bringing more people in is it kind of leads to I think a, a lot of what I just saw in your um, your podcast and we'll get to your book here in a minute is the idea of um, being a technology. I've been in the technology space for over twenty years. It actually has changed my thought process. Where I try to think, okay, it's it's well knows my favorite word iterative. You know, you do something once and it doesn't make sense. You figure out how to improve the process. And and you really focus on that, especially in your role as the chief editor of Entrepreneur Magazine. It sounds like you talk to a lot of people and then you. You actually embrace those stories and say, here's how you can actually, you know, kind of improve your thought process. So for example, give us the thought process on vertical versus horizontal thinking. Yeah, sure. So talking to, in the same way that you just said, being around tech has really changed the way that you think. My world is entrepreneurs because I, I run Entrepreneur Magazine and I, I find technology very interesting as a as perhaps the most visible articulation of change and new things. But I really am fascinated with just the way that people manage change and build and grow more broadly as well, because I think understanding that really also helps you understand the conversations that are happening culturally around technology. So let me talk about vertical and horizontal. This came to me when I, years ago, was releasing a 
book with my wife. So I, prior to entrepreneur, I was just a media guy. I, I, I was an editor at multiple magazines. I had this idea for a romantic comedy in which uh, two people, the story is that two people sleep together each week and then critically review each other's performance in a magazine. <laughs> was uh, this when you were at Maxim? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. It was, um, it was I, before I was at Maxim was when I thought about that, but it was, it, it would have made more sense to release right. when I was it at It seems Maxim. like a, a series you would read in Maxim. Totally. Life. It totally does. It was just, you know, it was just an idea that popped into my head years and years ago. And my wife and I decided to write it together because she's a novelist and it came out in 2018. And at that point, I was an editor, I was the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And so I, I started to get these two completely different responses to this news that I had this romantic comedy coming out. Friends who were writers and in media would just say, Congratulations, that's awesome. But entrepreneurs would say, Oh, so uh, what are you going to do with it? What's the point of it? Because to them, it doesn't make any sense to do something simply for the sake of doing it. You do something because you are going to build on top of it because it it fits into an existing structure of growth. And I realized that I had come from a world of horizontal thinking where I do something, I put it out in the world, I move on to the next thing, I put it out in the world, I move on to the next thing, I put it out in the world. And entrepreneurs think vertically. They think the only reason to do something is because it is a foundation upon which the next thing will be built. That kind of thinking, which I have now absorbed, radically altered the way that I approach my career and my work. Because now I have I have a filter by which I'm looking at things and saying, okay, I, I here's where I want to go. Here are the strategic steps that are going to get me there, and everything that I do must fit into that, or else it is extraneous. So the book that I've written now, for example which is also called Build for Tomorrow, is very much in line with this direction that I want to go. And I've thought about what things I do and don't want to do. And I am building and thinking vertically every single day. It is a mind shift. And once you get there, the best word I can come up with is clarifying. That makes it a lot of startups being in the tech space for a long time. It, people who don't, they come from a corporate town. I'll just, you know, mm -hmm. like, it's like you're from where Kellogg's is made or something, you know, you just do the same thing over and over again. And you, you're just part of that supply chain. That's what you do in that town. Yeah. And that's just not what you see. And one of the reasons why um, a lot of the work I do in tech policy, you try to explain, you can't put these, these obstructions in place because it makes sense to some other industry or vertical tech needs a clear path to be able to innovate. And they don't have a problem failing as long as they learn from the failure. And, mm -hmm. and that's not always the way people think. The other thing that you mentioned to me before that you are working on in, in your book, first of all, do I have the outline of your book right? You're, it sounds like you're just you're taking a lot of these lessons and you're writing them down to make us all smarter people. Is that where we're <laughs> Basically, so my argument is that change happens in four phases, panic, adaptation, new normal, and wouldn't go back. And that the most successful people, the most successful companies are the ones who are leaders of companies, are the ones that can navigate through those changes the fastest and the most efficient. So I wanted to understand how people people do it. And so what I did is I combined lessons from the smartest entrepreneurs of today, many of whom are, are coming from tech, as well as the history of innovation and the history of technology, which I've studied from the podcast to understand how change happens and how people navigate it smartly and turn it into opportunity. In one of your podcasts, you talk about how John Philip Sousa, who I love, you have to explain who that is in the podcast. That almost broke my heart, <laughs> you know, was very concerned about uh, recorded music. Yeah. That, you know, people would, you know, they wouldn't be singing because they would just listen to recordings. I mean, and we know from oh, yeah. so many 
you know, like Spotify is a great example of like the exponential, of like how many different things you listen to because it's like, if you like this, go check this out. You know, there's other Well, let, yeah, let, let me tell you that story because I, I feel like that story actually really captures well why so many people panic about new things. And I think that for people who are in the business of creating new things and then watching how people and trying to manage how people react to them, I think this is a really important thing to understand. So my argument here is that people panic over change because they equate change with loss. Something new comes along and they immediately say, oh, this is going to alter the way in which I used to do something. And you know, we do this at a cultural level. This is why, for example, you'll have, and we still have these kind of endless conversations about, oh, this new form of social media is destroying some old way in which we communicated or we gathered or whatever, right? That you're seeing some kind of change, you're equating that change with loss. And that's natural because it's so hard to see gain. When new comes along, it's very, very difficult. And and and, and I think, and I'm going to put a bookmark in this because I want to come back to it, but I think that I think that technologists, innovators, people who create often are so familiar with the thing that they're creating that they forget that it is going to be unfamiliar to everyone they're introducing it to. Right. And, and so um, they leave a gap in knowledge there because they're not building what I, this, this bridge of familiarity, which, which I, I'll talk about in a second, but let me go back to the John Philip Sousa thing. So, so people equate change with loss. And then because they want to know what's coming next, they start to extrapolate what they already know, which is that they extrapolate the loss. So they say, because I lost this thing, because this change is coming, I'm going to lose this thing. And because I lose this thing, I'm going to lose that thing. And then I'm going to lose that thing. And suddenly it's a terrible death spiral. And that is so well captured by John Philip Sousa. So John Philip Sousa, who, even though it will make you sad, Shane, I'm going to explain John Philip Sousa. Well, you just mentioned it. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's fine. Yes. A famous musician, composer of the time, wrote all the military marches that you know today. Da, 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 da. That's John Philip Sousa. John Philip Sousa in 1906 uh, was a leader of the resistance against recorded music technology, the first phonographs. And he made these wild arguments in a piece called The Menace of Mechanical Music in Appleton's Magazine, where he argued for all the different ways in which this was going to destroy our lives. And the one that you were referencing is that he said that when you bring recorded music technology into the home, it will halt all forms of live music. Nobody, why would anybody perform live? And because people will no longer perform live at home, mothers will no longer sing to their children. Because again, why would they do that? And because children grow up imitating their mothers, now they'll now grow up to imitate the machine, and thus we will raise a generation of machine babies. That was his argument. And and what you see here is of him extrapolating loss. Now, of course, what what he didn't recognize was that this technology was actually going to create all sorts of massive new opportunities for people in his industry. And we're going to actually expand access to consumers. We're going to expand job opportunities. And he was really, in fact, defending a system that was limiting his economic opportunity, but he couldn't see it because he was equating change with loss. It's a great story. And that in case when he wants to listen to that whole podcast, it was, I love the title of this one. Let's see. The case for sex robots. That's the one that it was on. It was actually a, a fascinating one. It didn't, I mean, it was, you know, the, the yeah. sex robots thing kind of went the direction I thought it would, but the, yeah, yeah, yeah. John Philip Sousa in the middle of that, I wasn't, wasn't expecting right. that. I didn't expect that. Yeah. Okay. Go back to what are your four points again? I got to reiterate panic, these, like, adaptation, panic. new normal, and wouldn't go back. Wouldn't go back being that moment where we have something so new and valuable that we say, I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had this. I think that's really interesting. So the other part that I've heard you talk about, that I think is fantastic because I spend a lot of time, Washington is one of these places where smart people like to land and then they're like, they don't quite know what to do next. And then their mm. parents usually call me and say, can you talk to my kid? <laughs> <laughs> and I do. And sometimes it works out well most of the time, yeah. hopefully. But it's this idea of opportunity A and mm -hmm. opportunity B. So can you walk us through that? 
Sure. I think that this is something that's important for anyone at any stage of their career, but particularly I think when you're young. Okay. So I have this theory of work. It's called work your next job. If you want to be more adaptable, if you want to prepare yourself for the future, if you want to future-proof yourself in your career, work your next job. What does it mean? Well, Jane, you, me, everyone listening right now, we in front of us have two sets of opportunities. Opportunity set A, opportunity set B. Opportunity set A is everything that's being asked of us. So if we have a job and we have a boss, then we show up to work every day and we have tasks that we must perform and there are things that we're evaluated on. That's opportunity set A. Do well at that. Then there's opportunity set B. Opportunity set B is everything that's available to you that nobody is asking you to do. And that could be at your job. That could be new teams to join. That could be new responsibilities to learn. But it could also be something outside of your job. It could be that you really like listening to podcasts and maybe you should start a podcast. Whatever it is, this is opportunity set B. Nobody is asking you to do it, but it is available to you. My argument to you is that opportunity set B is always more important infinitely more important. Doesn't mean that you discard opportunity set A, you got to do good at your job, you got to make money. But opportunity set B is where growth happens. If you only focus on opportunity set A, you will only be qualified to do the thing that you're already doing. But opportunity set B is where you grow, where you learn, where you develop new skills. You don't even know how, you don't even have to know why it's going to pay off. But I am telling you that the more that you push yourself outside of the thing that you're already doing and into the things that you could be doing, the more you will expand your opportunities and you will also expand your access to people and to ideas and to things. And that is where you're going to really grow. Thank you. Because I think that's just so important. And I heard you talk about this on one of your other um, podcasts was yeah. opportunity A is like, you want me to congratulate you for doing your job. I'm like, <laughs> sometimes you have to, but uh, yeah, right, right, right. job. But there's just, especially in areas like where I am in, in Washington, uh, since I've been in the tech space, I've gone out of my way to try to meet every person who was part of what we now would consider web one, since we're mm. on, on our way to web three and been able to ask some questions like Vince serves very you know honest about, Hey, we didn't think about security because we all knew each other. We were just so excited. We could connect a bunch of machines and actually talk. And it never occurred to us that we needed to put locks on those at that level. Right. And, and I tried to meet Kissinger the other day because he's 99 and mm. he's 99. Yeah. So um, yeah, there's just certain Time points now. where, yeah, you're like, I was like, it was a Saturday afternoon. I was like, Kissinger's talking at four. I'm going to the Kennedy Center. Um, <laughs> so I, I I mentioned that to several parents and they all call me or they'll text me and go, what was that thing again? Opportunity A, opportunity B. I'm like, <laughs> tell them to go with the opportunity B. Um, and then there was another thing you talked about when going back to the vertical and horizontal, um, explain mm-hmm. stacking. Oh yeah, well, stacking is a is a is a method of uh, of time management, which I think is also really important for people. You know, I'll, I'll actually before I get into stacking, I will tell you I've, I've I do a lot. I write a book, I make this podcast, I I'm the editor in chief of this magazine, I speak, I I do some startup advising, I do a lot. People ask me, how do you do all this? And the answer is that I think of time like a balloon. So here's a funny thing: when you think, I, I, you know, people might have listened to the opportunity set A B thing, and they might have thought to themselves. Well, that, that makes sense, but I don't have time for that. I don't have time to do a new thing. And, and here's the thing. Nobody has time for anything. Like right. there, is not, there is not a gap of time that you're going to one day have where you're like, oh, now I can fill this time with a new thing. It doesn't work that way. You don't make time and then fill it. Instead, you have things to do and then you make the time for it. It's exactly like a balloon. So you don't, if you're going to fill up a balloon, what you don't do is make room in the balloon for the air, right? You don't expand the balloon and say, now there's room for the air. I'll put the air in. That's not how a balloon works. You 
fill the balloon with air and then it expands. And the same thing is true for time. You add more things to your day and it forces you to reconsider everything that you're doing to come up with efficiencies, to decide what is worth your time and what is not. And that is how you get to do more things. That's how I do it. So stacking is one wonderful method of thinking through this. So stacking is something that I, um, I got from Bethany Frankel, who was originally best known as being one of the Real Housewives uh, of New York, but uh, now also is the founder of Skinny Girl, uh, extremely right. extremely popular right. line of like everything. There's just like there's Skinny Girl everything's out there, and she told me that one of the things that she does is she stacks. So, which is to say that if there is, if she takes like tasks, right, that all require the same kind of thing from her, and then she stacks them together so that she is most efficient with the time before and after. So for example, when she does interviews, she has to get all dressed up and put on makeup and you know the whole thing. Bethany doesn't like doing that. Bethany would rather be sitting around in her pajamas working from home. So it doesn't make any sense for her to every single day get dressed up and put on makeup for one interview. Why not instead take six interviews, stack them up so that she's just doing them back to back to back to back. And therefore, she only has to get dressed up and do the makeup once. And once you hear that, you think, well, there are there are all sorts of ways in which anybody could do that because we all have these tasks and we like scatter them throughout our days. And then there's all this time where we have to study up and think or change or set up the microphone for the podcast or whatever. And if you just start thinking about how can I be ever more efficient about everything that I'm doing, then you start to create more time in your day for all the other things. So I love that. And I actually do a version of that a lot. I mean, I won't leave the house for just one thing. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. Right. I'm going to do two things before I'm going to leave the house. You also have another podcast. So you have Build for Tomorrow, and then is the second one Problem Solver? Yeah, the second one's Problem Solvers, uh, which is which is a, a show I do for entrepreneur. And to me, I, I think of that one as like a forcing function of talking to really, really smart people and oh. absorbing and absorbing the things that they do. And then the the Build for Tomorrow podcast is really like the big ideas podcast where I engage with a lot of uh, technology and, and ways in which we change. And when does your book come out? So the book comes out September 6th. Find it uh, wherever you find books. If you've uh, ever heard of a place to get books, then that's the place to get this book. But if you, for some reason, cannot think of a single one, uh, I love politics and prose. My wife uh, grew up in Chevy Chase, so we were there a lot uh, for your Washington, D.C. listeners. But um, so anyway, jasonpfeiffer.com slash book is a good place to get it. Are you going to be in D.C.? Will we be able to come visit you? If you are you going to be at politics and prose? There's two. Uh, you can go to the one at the waterfront and get a cocktail afterwards. Oh, that sounds great. You know, I I have not been to the one on the waterfront. I've I've only been to the one that's near Chevy Chase because that's where yes. my wife grew up going. So I I will, but I don't have dates. But you know, people can follow. So I have this. I I have a newsletter. It's called Bills for Tomorrow as well. You know, you got to you got to. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you staying on theme. Got to stay I mean, on it, brand. It's it's, you don't want to create too much confusion. So yes. uh, yeah. Anyway, Jason Pfeiffer dot It's my my last name is F E I F E R. So Jason J A S O N. Pfeiffer, F-E-I-F-E-R dot bulletin.com is my newsletter where I'm going to keep people posted on all that stuff. So uh, I, I would love for people to, you know, to connect. I have really, I've spent years and years trying to understand how we can both be navigators of change and change makers. And I am just, uh, I'm totally obsessed with how people do it. And I love connecting with people who are thinking about it. Well, as you can tell, I'm a fan. But I'm I'm also a groupie, so I will be. <laughs> I, I've signed up for the newsletter. I love the Amazing. podcast. I look forward to the book coming out. And if you do come to Washington, let us know because we we may know a few people. Oh, which reminds me, that's one of the things you said. And another one is 
it's amazing how many people don't keep their connections. They will meet somebody and they just let yes. this whole thing drop. So, just, oh my God, let, let's, let's finish with that. Tell us how important that is. Okay, I, I will finish with that, and then and then also wait. Can I then add something on top of because I promised yeah. the, the bridge of familiarity thing, and I don't I don't want to leave people hanging. Okay, so quickly, I realized years ago that I was I was letting people slip through my fingers because I would meet people, then I would forget, and so I started to create. And I realized this sounds awkward and weird at first if you're not doing something like this, but I just started. I created a Google sheet, just a spreadsheet that I call Good Contacts, and every time that I meet someone, Shane, you're in it. Every time I meet someone who is interesting. I, I put them in good contacts. I have little tabs, there's media, there's technology, there's whatever. And that way I can go back periodically and say, oh, I haven't caught up with that person in a while. Or, uh, oh, you know, I, I really, I need somebody who can think about this. And I go back to the form. It, it is just wonderful to know, have everybody you know in one place. So it's, a, it's your own individual version of Salesforce. It is. That's exactly right. It's a CR. It's a personal CRM. It's a personal CRM. And LinkedIn right. isn't enough because you want to be able to put notes. I totally get yeah, that. Yeah. Because, and LinkedIn is chaos yeah. because I, I just accept everybody. So I've got like 40,000 connections on LinkedIn. So, okay. I know we're short on time. So I'm going to tell you, I'll just tell you the bridge of familiarity really fast. So here's, okay, here's the thing. Quick technology history story that I, I bet people will love. And this is going to lead to some advice for anybody who is in the business of introducing new things to people. So the car, brand new thing, or the horseless carriage, as they called it, you know, going, going back a century more. And at first, when this thing hit the streets, people did not say, oh my gosh, this is a wonderful new way to get around that it makes my life so efficient. People instead said, this is the devil wagon. And they threw cars at it. I, 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 I don't know. Devil wagon, by the way, literally, uh, this is a phrase that they use. I don't know if you know this, but like when, when people would drive <laughs> a horseless carriage down the street, other people would stand on the sidewalks and they would yell, get a horse at, at the people who are driving by. People hated these things. Uh, they hated them. So the, the story that we know is that the mass adoption of cars was driven by Henry Ford. And that's sort of true in that he innovated manufacturing. But there was something that came before this that is not often told in the history books that came to me from an automobile historian who had told me this. And she's, she said that she said that years before Henry Ford, the automobile industry was trying to understand why people were not so excited about this new technology. And they realized that they were presenting it wrong because they were running these ads in which they were talking about the car as a replacement to the horse. But the thing is that people like their horse. The horse was a member of the family. The horse was something that had been in their family as long as they had known. They had no desire to get rid of the horse because the thing is, People, this is something like if you are in the business of creating new things, write this down to remind yourself. People don't like new things. You know what they like? They like better versions of old things. That's what they like. They like an improvement to something that they're already familiar and comfortable with. And so the thing that you need to do when you're introducing something is not say, hey, I've got something so great that you're going to throw your old life away and take up my thing. Instead, you have to say, here is a way to do the things that you love to do better. That's where we need to be. And I think that that's something that innovators always forget yeah. because they are so focused on the value of the thing that they created that they don't understand that most people don't see how it fits into their lives. So the solution for the automobile industry was to start to talk about the car, not as a replacement to the horse, but rather as a better horse. Advertisements of the time started to shift where they would now start to talk about cars in horse terms. They started to name cars after horses, which is a tradition that we still have today. They started to- Oh, um, right. Yeah, they start, yeah. They, Mustang, they, yeah. They, yeah, exactly. Bronco. They started to, they, they like in some cases, they would even put like 
fake horse heads on the front of these cars. And this ultimately gave people the opening to embrace this thing because now it fit into their lives because it wasn't a replacement of something they were comfortable with. It was an addition to something that they're comfortable with. And that, that is the bridge of familiarity. And that is what we all need to be building. Now I'm going through my head, just the generations of car names, which I'm going to go look up after this. <laughs> Jason, it's been such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. And I look forward to reading your book. And please, please stay in touch. And thank you for being a guest on Explain to Shane. I sure will. I'll see you at Politics of Press. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.